Let's bow our heads for a prayer and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask for your own purposes that you would use the Holy Bible during this period, that you'd find a way to help us understand what is true and right. And I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And we're looking at verse 11. Excuse me, looking at verse 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Last page of the book. Afterward, Jesus appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. I remember well when this verse settled into my mind. Jesus had just been resurrected He was meeting with his grieving disciples. He was about to leave them forever. And instead of a warm, loving caress, what did he do? He rebuked them. The word is upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. I have two professions. You don't need to know that, but it'll help you understand where I'm coming from and what I say. One profession is I teach Bible and history. But the other profession is I train call porters. I do one during the breaks and one during the semesters. And I think I understand something about this verse from the canvassing work that I would not have learned from looking at the verse itself. Do you remember what Jesus said? According to your faith, so be it unto you. Think about that passage for a minute. According to your faith, so be it unto you. And think about it in connection with griping or complaining or murmuring. If I say something like, um, do I have to witness That kind of question, does that question say something about God? It says something about God putting a burden on you that he has not given you sufficient equipment to fulfill. It makes it sound like he was irresponsible in giving you the assignment. It really is an unkind statement about God. If I complain about my house or about my children... That's safe. I don't have any. If I murmur about some aspect of my life, that it's not the way I want it to be, perhaps that I'm dying of cancer, for example. But didn't Jesus promise that all things in my life will work together for my good? What if I speak as if it isn't so? You know, it's unbelief if I speak as if God's word isn't true. And if righteousness is by faith, pray tell what is by unbelief. 
You know, that's exactly it. It's unrighteousness. I want to show it to you. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And we're looking at verse 46. This should be a famous passage to Adventist because it's just a little ways up and around here that Gentiles end up hearing about the... Well, they end up hearing the truth on the Sabbath. Acts 13, 46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that is, to the Jews. But seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Do you all remember what Brother... Bachelor said is the most quoted verse in Scripture? Judge not, right? Do you see in this verse that many people judge themselves? How do we judge ourselves? We judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life when we do not receive with gladness the Word of God. When we do not re receive the Word of God as it is. Why did Jesus upbraid his disciples with their unbelief? It is because, and this is like my big point for the next 15 minutes, then I'll go to something else. Unbelief cuts us off from help from heaven. So that often we have to choose between pity from man or power from God. I'll tell you my experience with canvassing and you can apply it to your own situation. If a student gets into the van and if I'm leading a call porter team and he tells me there's no one home on these streets, what he would like from me would be pity. He would like me to have a feeling like this. Oh, the reason that you're not selling books is because there's no one to sell them to. But he had a promise in the Bible that said that there's a, many of them. A few of them say things like, you'll hear a voice behind thee saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. That God will guide us continually, Isaiah 58. The promise that if we acknowledge him in all our ways, that he will direct our, our paths. You know that he could pray that God would put him on the right street and God would put him on the right street. If he does pray that God will put him on the right street, and then he talks as if it's the wrong street, he has just cut himself off from heaven's help. And I don't like that. He needs heaven's help very badly to do a work like the canvassing work. So that I train him to say something rather like this that I know God is going to use me to reach someone in this area. Is that how he feels? No. Would he like to get some sympathy and, and to feel excused for not having success? He would. But is that what he needs? No, it is not. 
you will often in life have to choose between pity from man and power from God. And how do you get the pity from man? It's by speaking about the unfortunateness of your situation. I think that was not English. About the misfortune of your situation. But how do you get power from God? You speak as if his promises are true. As if he's with you till the end. Does this mean that we want to put on like just a fake life? I remember I've had lots of students who have thought that's exactly what I was teaching them was to live a lie. Do you know how Paul dealt with this? He would say something like this, that um, we are oppressed, but we're not destroyed. He would say, I'm summarizing a long list of things he said, I have a problem, but there's plenty of hope. God is not letting go of me. I have a problem, but God is sufficient. There's a difficulty, but God will see me through it. Did Jesus give expression to when he felt felt sad? Didn't he say, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death? He gave expression to his sorrow, but never to anything like despair or hopelessness. He said that God would presently send me 10,000 angels if I asked for them. Jesus talked as if God would support him and see him through. He depended on God in the midst of his problems. So that it would be appropriate for me to say something like, I'm having a hard time. But if I stopped at that point, it would be inappropriate. I would want to say, I'm having a hard time, but I know God will see me through it. He is sufficient for my difficulty. Maybe this all seems like just words to you, but it has everything to do with real Christian living. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and looking at verse 13. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 13. It says, We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. What is the spirit of faith? It's to speak what you believe. Listen. We also believe and therefore speak. I hope you can see what I'm about to tell you. It might not make you feel good. We protect ourselves because of our unbelief. Because of our unbelief, we protect ourselves from the danger of having confidence giving a confident assertion of what God is going to do in case he doesn't do it. That was too big a sentence. Let me say it smaller. If I say in the canvassing field that God is going to help me today and here to bless someone, I sort of risk something. What will people think of me if nothing 
happens. Or something is wrong. That, that feeling of risk is just unbelief trying to hide under a shield of reason. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That is, when God said that he was going to have a son, Abraham thanked him for it. He could have just kept it to himself. It would have been safer. Because he keeps it to himself and it doesn't happen, no one will think anything about him at all. But if he says that God is going to give me a son and then he doesn't get one, he looks really bad. So the passage said this, the spirit of faith is to speak what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? If you have it on the inside only, it's an opinion. If you have the spirit of faith, you will be speaking about that. If you believe that Jesus mercifully has forgiven your sins, if that's inside of you as an opinion, it's a good opinion. But the spirit of faith is to verbalize what you believe. How do you... How do you step up on a promise? Abraham was strong in faith and gave glory to God. That's part of what we read in Romans 4 as a model of why it was imputed to him for righteousness. Probably I'm about at the end of those 15 minutes, and I've said it enough times. Let me summarize what we've said so far. Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Unbelief is get expression by words or actions or silence to doubt in the promises of the word of God. Where faith leads to an imputing and imparting of righteousness, unbelief cuts me off from the blessings that heaven would like to give. So that Jesus upbraided his disciples. He rebuked them to their face after his ascension for their unbelief and hardness of heart. He loved them and did not want them any longer to cherish an idea that would cut them off from the help they so desperately needed. So I can say to you that I never have a bad day. I don't mean that sad things don't happen to me or that my car never breaks down. And I probably could make you laugh if I start giving other examples of things that go wrong in my life. But I don't intend to do that. I don't mean that bad things don't happen in my life. But I mean that my life is charmed. I believe it's so because of what I read in the scripture that God takes care of me that he started a work and that he will finish it, that he's with me today beside me and that he's sufficient to help me with any difficulty that comes my way. I believe in the things that he has told me and for that reason my day is perfectly blessed and I am so thankful that I get to live with Jesus today. That is what I believe regardless of whether or not that is how I feel. Unbelief would give expression to the feeling Faith gives expression to the word of God 
and the principles that are in it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and looking at verse 2. Wherein, that is in our old life, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. This is the word, the thing I'd like you to know. The word disobedience here is the same word that in many, in several other passages of the New Testament is translated unbelief. It's the same one. Greek has a, a habit of making words by taking a verb and just putting an alpha in the front of it and making it the opposite. So if to believe would be pistuo, then to not believe would be apistuo. Do you follow what I'm saying? Not that you actually need to know Greek. It's not relevant. But in this case, the word is not the opposite of believe. That was a real Greek I was telling you about, apistuo. This is the opposite of persuade. It means literally to be unpersuadable. That's why sometimes it's rendered unbelief as if you weren't persuaded by what God said and sometimes as disobedience as if you weren't persuaded to do what he said. Do you follow what I just said? The word is to be unpersuadable. I want to say obnoxious, but it's not really that. It's unpersuadable. This is the idea. Do you notice that the evil spirit of Satan works in the children of what? unpersuadableness. You do not want to be difficult to be persuaded to believe the good things God has said or to do the things he's asked you to do. Where does the spirit of, I'm speaking of the evil spirits, where do the evil spirits work? In the children of unpersuadableness. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 6. This is the same word in the end of the verse. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of unpersuadableness. Have you ever heard someone say, prove it? It is a dangerous thing to say in religious connection. I mean that it is perfectly legitimate if you urge on me some moral obligation for me to say, show me a thus saith the Lord. That is right. But if you show me several thus saith the Lord's, and yet I can see another way to understand those same passages, God does not require that I just believe that you're right and that I'm wrong. I can't depend on you that way. 
But the last thing I would want to do is to cherish unpersuadableness so that I would refuse to believe until every article of unbelief was removed. I can illustrate this better than I can say it. If you were alive during Ellen White's time, it really isn't true that all the doctors were saying that cigarettes are good for you. Have you heard anyone ever talk like that, like all the doctors were saying cigarettes are good for you? It really isn't so. It is true some doctors were proscribing cigarettes and others were saying don't use them. The research wasn't in. And if you wanted to, to know for certain whether or not you should use cigarettes, it might be difficult to figure out. But if you would seek to know, you could find the evidence in favor of not using. It wouldn't really qualify for proof. And who does the spirit of Satan work in? It's those who are unpersuadable. I've said that enough times. I'm going to move off of it. You can find more about that in the spirit of prophecy if you just look under the word proof. You'd find it. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to answer from Romans 3 a question about whether or not there is any value to being part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I mean, I think you'll get a few quiz questions right. Does being part of our church get you to heaven? Can someone outside of our church get to heaven? Then, then do you understand, if you understand both of those ideas, that it might seem a little bit perplexing to know what the real long-term advantage is to being a Seventh-day Adventist? Does it, do you follow what I'm saying with that? Romans 3 answers that question. In, Ro, in the last two verses of Romans 2, Paul said what I just told you. He said that he is a Jew which is one out... He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And, and that is circumcision, which is, yeah, that's exactly it, whose praise is not of men, but of God. That begs the question, chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Isn't that a valid question? What advantage is there to being part of the Jewish church, the Jewish body, if... You can be a true Christian without being a Jew at all. You almost would expect, I would have expected, the answer would be, no, there's none. But the answer is, verse 2, much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the, what does it say? Oracles of God. Why does God have an organized body? If you could get a hint for Romans 3. Is it because his organized body is so so holy? Why does he have an organized body? You know, he uses that body as a channel for truth. So that the prophets that were sent to this world in the Old Testament, if they had a message for Nineveh, were they Ninevites? If they had a message for Babylon, were they Babylonians? If they had a message for Assyria, were they Assyrians? 
You know who they all were? They were Jews. God had the Jewish church as a channel for truth, and faithful men took the gospel to the world from... But then the question happens in the next verse, but what if some of the Jews themselves did not believe? Do you see that question? Chapter 3, verse 3. But what if some of some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And the answer given next is not at all. Whenever you see the word God forbid in the King James, it's an exaggeration. What I mean is that the Greek doesn't say anything like God forbid. The Greek says not at all. And in Old English, the way they said not at all was God forbid. So they weren't going to exaggerate. But in our modern time, we don't say it that way. You should know. The answer is not at all. Let me stop at this point, make an application, then go on. What advantage is there to being a Seventh-day Adventist? This organization is God's channel for truth. If he chooses to give another prophet, he or she will be a Seventh-day Adventist. But more particularly, this is the organization that has the testimonies even now. We have them in our homes. We have the truth all around us, and it makes a difference on us as a body, even if the great majority of us don't believe and are unconverted in our experience. It really is incredible that God has an organization that is the channel for his truth. That's the advantage. If you move outside of the channel, if there's every advantage every way of being in, then there's a disadvantage every way being out. So I'm preaching for about minutes against congregationalism. Are you all familiar that there is a congregational movement related to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? It's out both the liberal end and the conservative end, both directions, for different reasons. What's a congregational movement? That's a movement where there are churches that are not really part of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. They're their own little body or group that are trying to be faithful by themselves in their own little body or group. I'm not saying people that are doing that are wicked. I'm saying that there's every disadvantage away. Because what is the purpose of being, or what's the advantage of being a Jew in the Romans 3 vernacular? It's a channel for truth. And what if they do not believe? Does that make the faith of God without effect? No, not at all. This led to a number of problems. I mean, Paul saying that led to some rumors about him. He said, Yea, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when you art judged. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. Not at all. For then how shall God judge the world? I think probably that you're just lost. But if you'll listen to verse 7, it'll tell you what he meant in the three verses before. For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, he's talking about the judgment. 
in the judgment, God is vindicated. Is he vindicated only by the righteous? He's vindicated both by the righteous and by the wicked. The wicked vindicate his judgments and the righteous vindicate his mercy. But if I vindicate God, even if I'm wicked, the question is, why am I yet judged as a sinner? And not, notice the parenthesis, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. This is side sermon number two before I get back to unbelief. It is a violation of the ninth commandment for you to believe rumors about other Christians and Seventh-day Adventists, except in the presence of two or three witnesses. Maybe I shouldn't say it's a violation to believe them. Maybe I should just say that's foolishness. It is a violation to spread them. Do you see in this verse that there were people who told false rumors about Paul? Do you see in the verse that some of those false rumors were confirmed by others that said we heard him say it ourselves? He said, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. If you heard a rumor about the Apostle Paul, if he was alive today, that said he was teaching that you can do bad things and still get to heaven, and then someone else said, I heard him say it myself. And someone else said, I heard him say it myself. It wouldn't really be true that he said it necessarily. Can you see that in the passage? Then how very careful we have to be. I had an experience in Oklahoma City. I guess it's probably about eight years ago. I was at a convention called Women of Faith. Have any of you been to a Women of Faith convention? They're huge, and every hand I saw in here was a male that was at it. Um, it's, I was there. I was passing out magazines, Adventist magazines to people. And sitting to, or standing to my right was a grown man with a white beard, and to my left was a short man with a mixture of gray and black hair, and both were quite a bit older than me, which is most people in the world. As we were passing these out, this man over here began to comment about the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, we're passing out Seventh-day Adventist magazines. And he said that Seventh-day Adventist ministers, meaning pastors, don't um, believe... I don't want to quote him wrong and violate what I'm saying myself. <laughs> he communicated an idea similar to this, that Seventh-day Adventist pastors are no longer in favor of the Great Controversy book and the things that it's teaching. And he told his experience about how one had given him a hard time over distributing the Great Controversy. Now, I listened to that for a moment, and I began thinking that in my life, I have visited very many states. It's over 30 of them now doing this canvassing work. And in those 30-some states, I've worked with several hundred pastors and and I can only remember one pastor out of the hundreds of them that was not very happy that we were selling great controversies. So I told the guy that. I told him that, listen, my experience is pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor is very happy to know that this book is being sold. And that I think you're risking violating the ninth commandment, which says 
Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy... Yeah. And that sort of made a tense situation. Have you ever made a tense situation before? And while we were sitting there kind of silent in our tense situation, the man that none of us knew over here to my left piped up and said that he's a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Which I thought was a very neat experience. So I'm almost done with that little side sermon. The point of that side sermon is you must be very careful what you say about your brethren, that by generalities you may lie about them, that if you're not careful in what you say, that you can violate the ninth commandment while advocating that we ought to keep the fourth, and that would not be something you would want to do. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're coming to the end of the section on unbelief. Now I'm going to move to unworthiness. Hebrews chapter 3. We're looking at verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What does unbelief do for us in our spiritual experience? our spiritual experience? It moves us further away from the living God. Unbelief moves us closer to the living God. That is, when we consider the fact that Jesus has promised to be with us, the fact that he has angels working for us, the fact that he has a willingness to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness, that he leads us in the way that we should go, when we're in consideration of these things, it draws us closer to him, an awareness that the living God is living with us. But unbelief distances us from the living God. In the example in Hebrews 3, when the people said, when the spies said, Canaan is a land, sure enough it has good grapes, but it has great big giants, and we don't know how possibly we can overcome them, we look like grasshoppers. It was factual, but it was unbelief. It was considering the facts that seemed contradictory to the promises. Is it good to consider facts? But there are certain facts that it is very bad to consider. Which facts? Apparent facts? It's facts that appear contradictory. Listen, it's facts that appear contradictory to the statements that God has made. I had a classmate when I was in... Well, he was actually a grade ahead of me when I was in academy. He seemed like quite a spiritual young man. I believe he probably was. He graduated ahead of me, and he went on to what later became a university. And when I saw him a number of years later, he had lost confidence in the spirit of prophecy as a reliable source of information. I think if he was here repeating himself to you, he would say something like, she was a good woman with a lot of good ideas and, and she had visions and was inspired and isn't God very inspiring in the morning? That was Ford's take on inspiration, that you all had a chance to be inspired this morning. And so Ellen White was inspired. 
he had lost confidence, this classmate of mine or ahead of me, in Ellen White over, well, there were a few statements, but there was one that really got him as being ludicrous. It was where Ellen White presented something like a germ theory of cancer origin. That is that, you know what she says like about eating meat? That um, she talks about the cancerous germs and indicates that it leads to tumors. Well, you know, no one has found anything like that. That about eating cancerous tumors leads to cancerous tumors. If they have, I don't know about it. I should say that. It's not like I read the scientific journals every month or something. I don't ever read them. But it was so interesting to me that he would take an absence of a scientific discovery and compare it to a statement from a prophet and use the absence of information to judge the possession of information. And it wasn't so long after that that I was reading myself in in some headline news the discovery that now is so well known of a connection between cervical cancer and a virus. Yeah. Now, everyone knows that now, I mean. I mean, it's just so well known. I'm not about to get into a science lecture. I'm not qualified. What I'm qualified to do is to say that there are certain facts that we can't afford to pay any attention to. What kind of facts are they? There are facts that appear to contradict something that God has said. You're still in Hebrews 3, perhaps. Let's read the next verse. The next verse is verse 13. But exhort on another, what does it say? Daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is my last point about unbelief. You should recognize that I am a weak human, and that because I'm a weak human, I am very prone to unbelief. I don't mean by habit, I mean by genetics. I am very prone to to doubt things God says because of my human 6,000 years of background. I need you to speak to me as if what God says is true. I need you to encourage me to believe that what God said is right. If you will encourage me on a regular basis to believe and have confidence in God and to be sure that he's with me, that will do a great deal to to prevent me from being hardened through deceitfulness of sin. How often should you be encouraging one another? It's daily. I should be encouraging you and you should be encouraging me so that the church should be a society of mutual encouragement to faith. I can't make that into English either. We should be a society of mutually encouraging each other to faithfulness, to believing what God says. If we did it, there would not be nearly so much growth in unbelief. What does unbelief do? It hardens my heart. What does it do? It cuts me off from help from heaven. What do I get perhaps by unbelief? I might get more sympathy from man. Do I really need sympathy from man? I don't really need it as much as I think I do. What do I really need? I need power from God, and that comes from talking and acting as if his words are true. In Culpeter Ministry, it says it this way, talk and act as if your faith were invincible. And it's not even talking about Culpeter. It's just Christian life. 
I don't know how, but my notes keep turning upside down. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Hmm. And when I get there, I might tell you to go somewhere else because it just doesn't look right in my head. It's not. That was last lecture. Revelation chapter... Just a moment. Revelation chapter 16, verse 6. There it is. You can understand, don't write good notes. My notes are just a bunch of verses and lines, and it doesn't always work. It doesn't always. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. This is the part of worthiness that is easier for us as Christians to understand. Why will the people in the near future be worthy to drink blood from their streams and rivers, from their wells? It's because they're going to kill us. Or, if you're on the wrong side, you're going to kill us. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, it's, bo- it's both ways. And they deserve to drink blood. That's the judgment of God. And it seems like angels ratify that judgment. By the way, there's a hint in this chapter about the mark of the beast, seal of God business. And that is that God punishes the earth with a scorching sun. They've honored the sun and then the sun scorches them, which is not relevant to this. It makes sense to us how someone could be worthy to suffer the plagues if they've done wrong. But this is the idea that we have to wonder about. It's what we read this morning in Revelation 3. Go back to Revelation 3, verse 4. I said we would come to it later. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are... It's that kind of worthy. Jesus is worthy of praise and worship. In Revelation, he's worthy for two reasons. Do you remember what one of those two reasons is? They're listed in chapters 4 and 5. What? Okay, the, in chapter 5, it's because he redeemed us. And what's the one in chapter 4? Because he's the creator. For these two reasons, Jesus is worthy of praise. He redeemed us. He created us. He created us first, redeemed us second. But in what sense am I worthy? Can we confess to ourselves that we are not worthy of any gift? That Jesus alone is worthy? And that if we want anything from heaven at all, that we must argue in prayer something like this, please give it to me because I need it and because Jesus deserves it. And I can never argue like this. Please give it to me because I need it and I deserve it. I'm just 
ratifying what you already believe, that we are unworthy in every respect. I, but I want you to be a little perplexed by this passage that refers to us as worthy. It's not the only one. Jesus talked about this idea several times. He talked about those who would be accounted worthy to attain to the resurrection of the just. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And we're going to Luke 20 and verse 35. This is a beautiful passage for several types of lessons. Luke 20, verse 35. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain the, that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Aside from worthiness, can you see how this verse could be taken very wrongly? If you didn't understand that it was referring to the world to come regarding marriage, it could look like that those who will be resurrected in the future are celibate today. Can you see how you could read this verse that way? But, and I'll tell you that exegesis, its most narrow definition, I know I confused some people on this this morning, I can't help it, I did it. The most narrow definition of just finding what's in the passage wouldn't help you out of this mess very well. But if you just compared it to another gospel, it would make it so simple that it's in the world to come that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So that what is very difficult right here, could be, is just a cinch when you're comparing Scripture with Scripture. But we're dealing with the accounted worthy. But they which shall be accounted worthy. That word accounted is helpful to us, isn't it? It sounds a little bit like judgment. It sounds a little bit like the white robe that we receive in the judgment. That Not that we are worthy, but that we're counted worthy and our sins are erased and we're given a white robe. It's, it's a helpful passage. Look at chapter 21, Luke 21, and verse 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, we still have that accounted worthy, but do you see that there's something we can do related to us being accounted worthy? What do we do in this passage that leads to us being accounted worthy? That's it. We watch and we pray. I think the verb watch is maybe a vagary to a lot of us in our mind. If you want to know what it means, the most helpful passage I know in the scripture for watch is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1 where it says, I will stand upon my watch and set me in the tower and will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. What was Habakkuk watching for? He was watching to see what is God going to say to me. What else was he watching for? He was watching himself to see how will I respond when I am rebuked. That's what we watch for. We watch to see what is God saying 
and we watch our response to make sure that we respond to him appropriately as our Lord. Let me summarize what we've looked at so far about worthiness. There are a category of individuals of whom Jesus said that they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Jesus talked about those who are resurrected will be the ones who are accounted worthy. And here he said, watch and pray that you may be accounted worthy. But we've already established that the only one who's worthy of praise or honor, glory, or any such good thing like that is Jesus. And let's just establish one more thought. Look at Luke 17, back about four chapters. Luke chapter 17, and looking at verse 7. Luke 17, verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by? By and by is another old English phrase that has entirely changed meaning. In 1611, it meant immediately. And in 2007, it means eventually. We're in 2007. This was translated in 16. 11. So I want to read verse 7 again. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him immediately when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward you shall eat and drink. Up to this point, it makes good sense naturally to me that if I had servants, I don't have any, but if I had servants, that they would make my meal first and then they would make theirs. It's the next verse that bothered me for a long time. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. That's what I trow not means. Did that ever strike any of you as being kind of not nice. But it's not really so different than the way we think today. When you go to Taco Bell, I think you probably do, when you go to Taco Bell and you order that four-layer burrito, I won't explain why I said four-layer. When you order that four-layer burrito and the lady brings it to you, What would you feel if she said, you know, that looks really good. I've never tried one like that before. You know, that's kind of nice. I'll make you one in a minute. And she began to eat. How would you feel about that? At Taco Bell, you already paid her for that. She is obligated to give it to you. And maybe out of politeness, you will tell her thank you when she gets to you, but I don't think gratitude wells up in your heart because it's a service that you paid for. Do you follow what I'm saying? Jesus was searching for an illustration to help you realize your relation to God when you, let's read it, it's the next verse, 17 verse 10, 
So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. If I do everything I'm supposed to, I have only done my duty. In fact, it's impossible for me to ever manage to do anything above my duty. If I manage tomorrow to do everything just perfect, that's exactly what I owe God. And does he owe me any thanks? He owes me none. So that never can I be deserving of any help from God. It's one of the lessons of faith. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're looking at verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and looking at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? It's such an interesting passage. I am not worthy because I'm righteous to judge my brother in the church. But I am worthy because of the gifts, the mental faculties that God has given to mankind and the responsibilities God has given to mankind. That is, he's given us judgment and he's, he's going to give us some time when we need to be judging. I am qualified to do that work of judging that needs to be done on this earth. That's the logic of 1 Corinthians 6. And if I can give one more side sermon and I'll be done in seven minutes, I promise you. If I can give one more side sermon, you should protest whenever you have a chance against our church suing other religious organizations for using the name Seventh-day Adventist. It is not appropriate. What would happen if the Roman Catholic Church sued us for using the name Christian? You know, they used it before we existed. That is a side issue, and I can feel it taking more than the four minutes I have left, so I'm going to leave it. But it's an important one. It's a shame on us for that. Turn to chapter 11. We'll read it, and I'll put these things together, and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're looking at verse 27. For whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There is no way that I can be worthy of the righteousness of Jesus. But I can treat the communion service in a disrespectful way that does disservice to my Savior. 
And if I do, I drink damnation to myself. The whole summary of what I wanted to say in this section, we haven't read the verse yet. You can look it up on your own. It's Ephesians 4.1 and Colossians 6 or 1.10. I'll tell you what they both say. They say that we should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we have been called. I can't merit God's forgiveness. I can't deserve a gift from heaven. I am incapable of being righteous on my own. But God requires me to live in a way that is an honor to my calling to be a Christian. And if I walk worthy of my calling, of my vocation, that is the same condition as we talked about in the first session of being given a white robe in the judgment. Who is given the white robe? It's those that are accounted worthy. Who are accounted worthy? Not those who deserve righteousness, but those who have walked in a way that is appropriate for their calling to be Christians. Those who have watched and who have prayed, those who have washed their robes and put away their sins. If we have lived appropriate for our calling, we are judged by God as worthy to be covered with his righteousness. That is to be forgiven, and that is the very thing that we need. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for a high calling, for a calling high enough that you can to heaven those that you call. I ask that you'd find a way to finish the work you've started in us, that you would save us from ourselves, that you would use us to encourage each other to faith, Use us to discourage unbelief in each other. And I thank you for those mighty promises that warrant the kind of confidence we need to have in you. We ask for your spirit to bring them to our minds. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.